Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. It takes courage for me to say, no, I'm just full of shit. I just want thanks. I just want the 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 prize. You know, say I'm the best mom. Please say I'm the best mom. Why? Because I'm, I want to tell the whole world that my daughter thinks I'm the best mom. Please write me a Mother's Day card so I can post it on Facebook. It's It's for me. So if we're not willing to look at that and see how things are for ourselves, then we call it love, but it's not love. been fighting with one arm tied behind my back. But what happens when I'm finally set free? What we do in life echoes in eternity. It's supposed to be hard. If it wasn't hard, everyone would do it. The hard is what makes it great. Only love can truly save the world. This is my mission now. Forever. Hey, hey, welcome back to The Better Podcast with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. Today, I sat down to speak to one of my favorite humans, uh, Dr. Shafali Sabari. For those of you who have never heard of Dr. Shafali, she is a world-renowned clinical psychologist, received her doctorate from Columbia U. Uh, she specializes in the integration of Eastern philosophy and Western psychology. So she is an expert in her field. She is, if you've ever watched Super Soul Sunday or uh, watched Oprah in any capacity, uh, she is Oprah's parenting expert. So she really talks about how to become a conscious parent and how to raise our children. And her frameworks and the way that she thinks about things are different to anything that I've ever seen or I've ever read. Now, of course, I've known uh, Shafali is a, is a dear friend of mine. I've known her for many years, but her body of work has, you know, whether I knew her or not, her body of work has changed the way that I approach parenting with my children and uh, the way that I try to see myself. And what we talk about in today's episode is what is a conscious parent? So thinking about this in the terms of the restoring the joy in the parent-child relationship and what the goal of parenting really is. Um, and she talks about, uh, we talk about, you know, what the expectations we should have from our children, if at all. And then we go through her book, The Awakened Family. Now, I don't often say, this, but if there is ever a book, if you are a parent, if you are thinking of becoming a parent or you already are, this really should be up there with some of the, I know when everybody gets pregnant, we all think, look at all the books about what to expect when you're pregnant and what to expect during pregnancy and what happens at this week and that week. But you know, for those of us who have already been through that experience, you know that the parenting is actually the harder part of uh, raising a child. It's not the pregnancy, it's not the labor and delivery. And Dr. Shafali masterfully goes through and deconstructs all of the myths around what it means to be a parent. You know, all I want, and this is a really big one, you know, all I want is for my kid to be happy and healthy. You know, what that is really saying about you and your, you know, developmental maturity in terms of the child. We talk about the idea of good children versus bad children. We talk about the myth that good parents are natural. It just is this inherent, innate thing that we all have how we are overloving our children, uh, we are overdoing it in the idea of, uh, of love and the idea that parents always need to be in control. One of the things I most respect about Shafali is she is a straight shooter. She just calls it like it is and really does not care how it lands. And I think that that is a, a testament and, uh, to her own evolution as a conscious woman, as a conscious human, and a conscious parent. So I hope that you really enjoy this discussion. I get a little vulnerable as well. And I'm, I find my, I was asking her questions about what I should be doing with my child who doesn't want to be uh, enrolled in soccer. And uh, she's just such a breath of fresh air. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Shafali Sabari. 
I am a huge fan of the Bio Optimizers Magnesium Breakthrough. It has seven forms of magnesium, which is going to help to transform your stress and your performance and your recovery and your sleep to the next level. I'm often asked like, well, what are the types of magnesium we should be looking for? So there's magnesium chelate and citrate and bisglycinate and malate, sucrosomial, taurate and orotate. They have various effects on the body. Bisglycinate, probably the most bioavailable and most absorbable. Malate, it's found naturally in fruits, helps with migraines. Chronic pain has been shown to help improve depression. Magnesium citrate uh, helps with arterial stiffness. It helps with maintaining a healthy weight. Magnesium chelate is important for muscle building, recovery and health. The list goes on and on. You're basically getting them all in one supplement. Each supplement itself is 500 milligrams of magnesium, which I feel is such a great dosage as a great baseline for most women. I have found a beautiful medium of actually cycling my magnesium. So I actually will take one or two of these. So I'm either getting 500 milligrams or up to a gram of magnesium, depending on where I am in my cycle. So head on over to biooptimizers.com forward slash better and use code better for 10% off of any order, but make sure that the magnesium breakthrough is in your cart. Don't be fooled by the frigid temperatures. Keeping hydrated in the wintertime is super important. In colder temperatures, we sweat more due to a higher metabolic demand of trying to maintain a core body temperature. We lose more fluids and electrolytes through our urine. We lose more water through respiration and just general breathing. And our skin dries out in the wintertime as well. We are a ski family, and over this winter, we have been using Elementee's Chocolate Medley. The chocolate chai is absolutely incredible with some boiling water, a splash of milk, and my kids love the chocolate mint with some hot water. This is our apres-ski. We cozy up with Element Hot After Hours on our cross-country trails. Now, for a limited time, you too can get the Element Tea Chocolate Medley and enjoy them hot as I have been doing with this exclusive insider bundle for you. When you buy three boxes of any flavor, it doesn't have to be the chocolate, it can be any of the flavors that they offer, you are going to get the fourth box free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And tell me which of the chocolate melody you love the best. So welcome back to the Better Podcast with Dr. Stephanie. And today I am speaking to one of my very good friends, colleagues, and someone who I really admire, Dr. Shafali Tsavari. Welcome. Hi, Stephanie. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's such a great honor to have you on the podcast. I want to do one of the biggest questions uh, that I get asked or that I actually find myself talking about is the idea of how I can become a better mother. How can I become a better parent to my children? And I think that you are the world's you know, foremost expert on that. So how I wanted to structure today's conversation, if it's okay with you, is talking about some of the frameworks in your body of work. You have such, you have two, you know, New York Times bestselling books, The Conscious Parent and The Awakened Family. So I would love to dive into some of the frameworks around it. And then uh, towards the end of our conversation, we can talk about the tactics, the strategies, the how to, like how we can apply those things. One of the things I often find is people, and I've, I know this is very true for you, people will always ask, well, how do I, well, how do I, well, how do I, well, how do I, and if we don't understand the overarching framework around conscious parenting, I think you'll, you, we want to be able to get people to answer those questions for themselves. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Okay. All right. So let's start off with a really, really easy one, or maybe it's the most difficult one. Uh, <laughs> what in you, like, how would you define what conscious parenting is? And I would love for you to touch on the parent child relationship and what the importance of that is as well. Well, the conscious parent understands that the traditional way they've been parenting till now is full of holes and mythologies that need to be debunked. So the conscious parent is already understanding that the way they've been doing it, not okay. Now, so who is a conscious parent? A conscious parent is one who begins to understand that the parent-child relationship is here specifically for the parent's growth, for the parent's evolution. And 
while the traditional paradigm always focuses on the child, fix the child, take care of the child, grow the child, the conscious parent understands that it's really about self-growth, the raising of the self, understanding the self. And when we use the parent-child relationship to heal ourselves, then quite naturally, we're going to be a healing presence for our child. So the conscious parent just kind of turns the whole paradigm upside down and stops focusing on the child and really focuses on the evolution of the parent, asking the parent, what is this about? Is this about my anxiety? Is this about my worries? Is this about my fears? Where is this anger coming from within me? In the traditional paradigm, we just point the finger at the child. My anger is coming because of them. They are behaving badly. And then we look to punish them and, and seek retribution. This is completely different. This is always about what am I bringing to the dynamic? How am I changing the energy? How can I better attune to my child? And really uses the parent-child relationship as a mirror for the parent's own evolution. That's beautiful. And it, it, it begs the question, like, you know, which child are you parenting? It's not the one, the form that you have birthed. <laughs> it's, you know, the unhealed, unmothered, un, you know, unparented uh, child within you that, you know, because we've all, and, you know, I've, I've been following your work and we've been friends for a while. Um, your paradigm around, we've probably all been raised by unconscious parents. So we are, we have to go inward to understand what our belief structure, where do our belief structures come from and how that's translating into our behavior, right? Absolutely. It's to heal the inner child uh, before you can heal the outer child. And no one wants to hear that. Like every grown up thinks they've grown up. Right. They don't realize that they've only grown up chronologically, but inside emotionally, they're really stunted. I haven't really met too many adults who are over the age of seven or 10 emotionally. Right. Oh, wow. Maybe, that's, maybe a few of us get teenagehood, but then in teenagehood, we're really acting out. Right. <laughs> so what are, if we are on this path towards consciousness, on this path towards becoming awakened and more attuned to our own reactivity to our environment, both internal and external, what are some of the goals of being a, of being a conscious parent? Is it to instill self-esteem in the child? Is it to rate, like what, what are some of the goals of being a conscious parent in your opinion? Well, the goal is for us not to have too many agendas and goals for the child, <laughs> right? Because we don't want to we don't want to impose our own projection onto the child. That's a goal. Right. The goal is not to put our goals onto the child. And then the 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 other main goal is to really uh, stay out of the child's way, usher the child, but not control the child, so that the child's true self is allowed to develop as much as possible, unhampered and unhinged by cultural conditioning. So in order for this to occur, the parent needs to have deconstructed their own attachments to cultural conditioning, which no parent does before they become a parent. Even I didn't do the, the work that I now have done since mm -hmm. having a child back then, but I had done quite a lot of cultural deconstruction and getting out of this matrix and, and understanding, you know, what are the lies that I don't want my child to grow up with that I grew up with, you know? So the goal is really for intense inner scrutiny of the parent to really uh, titrate what it is they're putting onto the child, what is truly the child's, what is the parents and, and how to dance that dance. It takes a lot of awareness and to be awake and to be conscious, to, to live your own life in your own lane and to know where your child's lane is. You know, It's not like hands off and don't raise your child. It's about caring for them, nurturing them, being there for them in a very present way, but not putting all the garbage of culture onto them that is not theirs. And I think what you're also saying is, you know, like any good mentor or any good coach, you know, any good coach will meet their client where they are, right? So they don't force the child or the, you know, the client to, to come into their level of experience and their level of being because the, 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 the client hasn't had that opportunity to evolve that way. Like, I, I think a parent is probably one of the best, you know, it's, you know, one of the best mentors or coaches that we all have. So meeting the child where they are, rather than trying to drag them into what our belief system is and allowing them to sort of flourish and being okay with them not being as evolved as we are and having patience around that and having patience for them to sort of grow into who they're supposed to be. Sure. And in many ways, our children are more evolved because they are, uh, uh, they allow themselves to be 
unhampered by culture. You know, they're very open about their feelings. They're, they're right. not yet jaded and critical like we can be. So in many ways, our children are more evolved and we can learn so much from them. That's such a great point. You know, when we talk about expectations of our children, so I understand what you're talking about in terms of we have to attune to our own, we have to go inward and we have to look and understand our essence and who we are as people and heal those wounds, those traumas. And it, by the way, it doesn't need to be, you know, a huge, it doesn't need to be like physical or emotional or sexual trauma, although we know that that those things do happen. It can also just be the constructs and the family blueprint, right? That what, that you grew up in. So that's, you know, really understanding and deconstructing that. When we think about this in terms of expectations from our children. From our children or for our children? Well, that's a really great question. Uh, I had constructed it as from, but maybe it, maybe the better question is expectations for our children. Because I've caught myself, I've caught myself projecting my own stuff, projecting my own expectations. Like and my son, Andreas, he, you know, I was, I grew up in sport. I was like, oh yeah, he, he's going to be good in sport, just like me. I ran track. I did relay. He's going to be, you know, he's yeah. going to be a prodigy. Started yeah. showing interest in running and soccer. And I was like, there it is. See, that's the, that's my stuff in there. That's the Stephanie stuff in there. And then last, so we put him in soccer, excelled of course. And then last summer we were signing him up again and he was like, I don't want to go. I don't want to do this anymore. And I was like, you're too young to make that decision. I get to, and then I had to, ch- I had to check myself before I wrecked myself. I had to say, okay, where is this coming from? Is this coming from my own ego, my own desire for him to be in soccer so that I can say, look, my son is, you know, in soccer or is it, you know, I was kind of like, well, should I do that? Or is it, is it because he's avoiding something that he needs to, I mean, the end, at the end of the day, we pulled it, like we pulled him out of soccer. Cause he was just like, I don't want to go to soccer. So I was listening to him, but in terms of expectations and I'll reframe it expectations for our child, we want to, I, I think that the control that I almost, you know, exerted onto him uh, was coming from my own fear. So when we think about expectations, how, how do you frame that in terms of setting them for, for the child? Yeah, it's really, really tricky because most of them come from not just fear, but you had this idea that your child would mirror your unfulfilled self, you know, so you, you ran track, you loved it, but you didn't fully fulfill it yet. Right. And it was the stuff that you left behind and you thought your child would pick up the baton and fulfill it. Yes. So, so any side resemblance, you know, if, if you were good in math and they're good in adding numbers, you're like, ah, 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 there, my child is going to fulfill my fantasy. And yeah. you, because you see them as an extension of yourself, mm-hmm. you kind of want to spread the, you know, the glory in a way, whatever glory you had, you want to spread it. The fear right. comes is when you have crap in your life that you know you weren't good at, and then you see that there, that's fear. You know, right. you're like, oh my God, my kid is just like me. Both are partly correct and so wrong mm-hmm. because in many ways, the kid, is, <laughs> the kid doesn't have your shy gene or your scared gene necessarily. Part of it may be there, but it's not all in totality. So they're just living their own lives. So how do you, as a, as a parent, expect from them in a way that uh, matches them? I, I, the way I convey it is quite simple. You know, the child will take the lead. You know, I always say, you didn't have to drag Mozart to the piano. You know, he would go there. Don't worry. You know, we're always afraid our child is some hidden genius that if you don't chisel away, what if you lose the opportunity? Don't worry, uh, you know, Michael Phelps will find his way into the water. Or Mozart will find their way to the piano. Chances are your kid is not that. You know, we have this fantasy that our kid will be the next, you know, whatever, Yo-Yo Ma, the next, uh, you know, man to cross the moon. Right. But sorry, you know, your kid is ordinary, underproven otherwise, and that's okay. So you don't need to have expectations of your kid. Your kid will show up as the way they already are and their blueprint. Now, you can have expectations in terms of you, they can clean their room, they can pick up after their, themselves at the dining table. That's very different than putting on them a vision, a dream, a life goal, right? Very different. So I think keep it to, to day-to-day expectations and the rest will kind of take care of itself. If they're meant to be a scientist, they're going to be a scientist. If they're meant to be an artist, they're going to be an artist. Like don't dictate their future. 
Right. And that's, uh, I know you love to call that drinking the parental Kool-Aid in terms of like projecting your ego. So I wanted to talk about uh, some of the myths that you discuss in your book, The Awakened Family. And if you're listening to this podcast and you have not picked up this book and you are a parent, I almost feel like it should be required reading before, if you are pregnant, you should be reading this. But even if you have children, you should still read this because it really does shake you to your core and it really asks you to question some of the beliefs that you have around who you are and how you show up as a parent for your child. So let's talk about each of these myths. The first one that you discuss is parenting is about the child. So we've talked a little bit about this in terms of like what a conscious parent is, but maybe you can touch on what the main focus of parenting should be. Is it child-centric? Is it parent-centric? Like how, how can we delineate between those two? Well, it should be child-centric only in terms of I want to attune with my child. I want to understand my child's true nature. But in order to be child-centric in that way versus the other way, which is I'm going to tell my child what to do. I'm going to control my child. I'm going to punish my child. That's not child-centrism. That is is parent-centrism from the ego. I'm talking about being child-centric from the parent's high self. I want to attune to my child's authentic nature. I want to understand who my child truly is. I don't want my child to go down a path that is not theirs. And if they do go down a path that is not theirs, that's okay too, right? But I don't want to be the one who puts my stuff on the child. So really cleaning up your own inner landscape, taking care of your own emotional baggage, your own emotional wounds, and cleaning your crap up so you can show up most present most real, most authentic with your kids. You're not using and manipulating them to make you feel better. That's the point of this book is don't use your kids to make yourself feel better. Right, right. And don't use your kids to do the unfinished work that you haven't done in your own life. Like you yeah. should be, like I should get yeah. back into track if I wanted yeah. to really fulfill that thing. You know? Yeah, <laughs> I'll go back to that relay team and show them. Yeah, yeah. You know, parents will say, I love the piano. I'm like, then you go play. Like, why are you putting it on your kid? If your kid is right. and, and frothing at the mouth, They don't like it. You'd like it, you know? Right, right. Myth number two, a successful child is ahead of the curve. And I know you've had an experience with this with your daughter when I think she was eight. You're bringing her to ballet lessons. Do you want to share that story? Right. So she was eight years old. I took her for ballet classes, really feeling like all ambitious and so proud that I'm, you know, finally it was her first structured activity. I was so late behind the curve because I didn't have any money. I couldn't, you know, fool around with her dabbling in all these things. It was, I need to wait for her to show up. And if she wants something, then we do it. I didn't have money to waste, you know, but we played at home. And I also was of the philosophy that she doesn't need anything structured till six or seven. So she was eight years old. I took her first first ballet lesson and the woman kept saying she's going to be in the class with the two and three year olds. And I kept saying, no, she's eight. And then, (laughs) And the woman is like, are you, a, you, you, something's wrong with you, woman. And I kept looking at her like something was wrong with her. But she was right. All the kids had started beginner ballet at two and three. At eight, nobody was a beginner ballet dancer, you know. So she, my daughter would have had to be with the two and three-year-olds. So in the end, my daughter, you know, I just told my daughter, we're going to just do solo activities like horse riding and tennis because all the group activities, your mom missed the curve, you know. She's way behind the curve. So then I began to deconstruct how we have these notions in our head of creating the successful child. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the modern parents, especially in America, in most affluent cities, at least, and probably even in Canada, that, you know, success has become the goal of childhood, not play, not exploration, not, not nothingness, not boredom, not creativity, but success. So we are contouring our children's resume from when they're in second grade. And this has got to have an impact on their psychology. And what is success? None of us even know what success is, but we have quantified it to mean, you know, lots of things on your resume. So lots of doing. And then the A grade, competition. But what if your kid doesn't like competition? My daughter, even though she did excellently in horse riding, She hated competition. She was like, I don't like everyone judging me and looking at me. So I don't like it. I'm not thriving from coming second or first. I don't like it. Other kids thrive on it. So again, who is your kid? And are we pigeonholing all the kids toward one notion of success? 
And you were, you said this before you were saying, you know, the ego wants our kids to be extraordinary. And I think that that's where a lot of this comes from as well. Like I, I call this the parenting Olympics because I feel like, you know, I remember uh, I was trying to set up a play date for, uh, I think it was Sebastian. And I was like, let so I was talking to the mom. I'm like, let's have, you know, the kid, you know, whatever the kid's name was, let's have him over, you know, sometime next week. And she was like, oh no, no, no. Like, it's like, it's only like, I can, I only have time like a month out and it's only for an hour. And it was like in between, you know, I think it was like baseball and like Mandarin lessons or something like it was like, I couldn't get a play date time, you know, because this child was so heavily scheduled out for the next, you know, month. And then even then it was only in between two activities on the Saturday that, you know, this child had, uh, this child was scheduled out with. So yeah. And I have uh, to say that we mothers have contributed to this, you know, I think we've given up our careers, we gave up our bodies, and we have this zeal within ourselves to make something out of our lives. And because parenting can so derail you, because it's exhausting, it's uh, time consuming, it's resource sucking. So we women feel guilty to leave our children, but we feel unfulfilled. And we kind of project that unfulfillment onto our children. And with great zeal, we make them our next PhD or our next project or going to the, instead of going to the gym, we send them to the gym and send them to mental gymnastics. Right. It's a way to compensate. And that's why we have to be so clear that we have our own lives. We are thriving. We are joyful. And the children are extra, you know, not to mean that they are lesser in importance and they're not central, but they're not central to your happiness. They're just central because they're important beings that need to be taken care of, but they should not replace your own quest for your own happiness. They're not your lovers, they're not your sexual partners, they're not your husbands, they're not your mothers, and they're not your puppets. And similarly for men, you know, men also treat their children as their their little puppets and possessions. Our children are not here to to live our lives, and they're not here to fulfill our destinies. They're here to become their own beings. Even if they're completely failures in, in, in typical standards or completely ordinary we're not here to make ourselves feel better because, oh, look at my kid, you know, my kid goes to all the Ivy League schools, went to undergrad to this Ivy League, grad to this Ivy League. I mean, you can't use your children like that. Right. And would you, because I can hear some of the questions, I can hear some of the complaints already uh, in the comments when this when this podcast uh, launches in terms of, you know, but shouldn't I be reaching for my, shouldn't I be trying to cultivate my child's potential? Like, is, how can, why, you know, shouldn't I, you know, try to bring them up to their highest version of themselves? Is that like a double-edged sword or is that? Yeah, it's all, it's all bullshit because really what we mean is that we're never happy with what the kid is doing. That's why we have the word potential. Potential means whatever the kid is doing, it's never the potential (laughs) and who decides the potential it's like you imagine you and I we make a big dinner party okay we cook together and then our friends come and they go oh this is nice but it's not to your potential and you and I are like uh no it was to our potential like what are you saying and they're like we know you can do better and we're like no this was so so amazing isn't what we're doing what we're doing like isn't that the the reflection of whatever we can do even if it's full of laziness, full of mistakes, full of sloppiness. Isn't that a reflection of our consciousness? Wherever we are is a reflection of our consciousness. So to push our kid to go more and more and more without examining where this is coming from is lethal for our children. And you and I know we've been raised and our friends have been raised by parents who were never happy. You know, that's what this kid will grow up with. Not that, oh, my mother, she pushed me beyond to reach my potential. They grew up with the sense of unworthiness why didn't I reach my potential on my own? And I could never make my mother happy. You know? Yeah. And if someone said that at my dinner party, I'd never invite them back again. Yeah. You won't say that, wow, what honest feedback. Even yeah. though we should say that technically. Right. But we also be feeling bad because they're not recognizing the isness of what we did do. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's yeah. the tricky thing with potential. It's like, oh, I do, I do recognize that you have something hidden. I can't see it, but it's hidden. Right. And what you are showing me is not good enough. And you're assuming the child is not whole, right? If yeah. you're saying you have this potential, it's yeah. that you you haven't achieved everything that you are that you already are yet. Some it's off in the future, which I think is also yeah. very destructive. Very cunning. So third myth: there are good children and there are bad children. Yeah, you so, know we've all been raised with this good and bad. I mean, as women, yeah. we have this good and bad women and good and bad yeah. men. Yeah, good and bad children. 
you know, we live in a world of duality in our mind and we, 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 because we can't handle too much complexity, we need to know the checklist for good and the checklist for bad. Mm-hmm. And good is typically things that fall into the cultural mainstream paradigm, polite, obedient, things that don't rankle us, make us feel good as people, mm-hmm. right? When our kid is obedient, oh, so good. Never mind the kid is probably hating our guts in, in their deepest core. We don't care as long as we look good in culture and in our personal life. So that's good. And the bad kid, we know, is the one who gives us trouble, doesn't listen to us, we have to repeat ourselves, is terribly inconvenient to us. So we label them bad. Little do we realize that when we label them bad, they become really, quote unquote, bad. They become worse, you right. know, because they learn this helplessness almost that, you know, there's nothing I can do that's good. So what, and I, what I've heard you talk about when we talk about bad children is you should almost be thanking that child because that child is mirroring the things that you need to, you know, to heal within yourself. So they are usually, you know, if you have like the, you know, the black sheep or like, you know, the, the child that like never listened, always went against the grain of the family. This is usually the most empathic, very sensitive child that usually absorbed a lot of the energy that need, that you need to almost heal. And that child is almost reflecting that you know, back to you. Is, is that something that... Um... Yeah, there's a beautiful poem in the book. Uh, I don't remember the, the page number, which says, you know, y- y- there is no such thing as a bad child, right? right. There is just no such thing. Mm-hmm. They're only bad because they don't operate in your paradigm. And that takes a lot of courage to to accept as a parent that this kid I've been calling a troublemaker. You know, some parents say, since, the, since he came out of the womb, he was, you know, a troublemaker. Okay. Right. There's no such thing. If the kid is colicky, he's not a troublemaker. If the kid doesn't like your milk, he's not a troublemaker. If the kid doesn't eat 90% of the food you eat, you cook, he's not a troublemaker. He's just a terribly inconvenient kid who, like you said, is probably more sensitive. So there's no such thing as a bad kid. I've just eradicated that idea Mm -hmm. from my head. I just then replace it with, okay, this is a kid with these, with these that pose the parent these challenges. How can the parent rise to meet the child? And like you said, when you thank the kid for being bad, you know, because you've learned so many lessons from this kid, then the whole role of the kid changes. The bad kid changes. You know, the bad kid is the, like you said, the exalted one. The bad kid taught me patience. The bad kid taught me to go for therapy and work on myself. The bad kid made me realize I have anger issues, right? The good kid never does that. The good good kid is completely spiritually useless because they abide by you. And in many ways, they can aggrandize your ego because they never force you to look in the mirror. Spiritually helpful are the bad children. I am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health, and overall aging well. I personally decided on an infrared sauna from Sunlighten because of the range of far wavelengths and near infrared wavelengths that it offers. Saunas help with detoxification and rejuvenation to rid your body of toxins. It helps with heart health by improving circulation, reducing blood pressure, and helping keep the arteries supple. It helps with muscle recovery by easing the tension and soreness to recover faster. And of course, stress reduction with the warmth and the relaxation of sitting in a sauna. It's crucial for hormonal balance and achieving a state of well-being necessary for a strong physique and a strong mind. If you visit sunlighten.com slash better and use code better to get a discount. That is sunlighten, S-U-N-L-I-G-H-T-E-N.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout. And I think it's also... uh in terms of growth, in terms of your own attunement and awakening to yourself, asking how you can be of service to that child is also, you know, I found this with, so Andreas, if we were going to like label my children, I'd say Andreas is my more spirit, he's more spirited. So he often reflects to me the things that I need to work on. And I got like, I actually took this directly from your book. So I will literally say to him, okay, how can I change what I'm doing right now in order to help you? How can I, how can I be a better parent to you right now? And I started doing this uh, a couple of years ago. And of course, like, you know, he was like six at the time. So he'd be like, well, you, maybe you should buy me more presents. That would be better. Like that was his initial, you know, so he didn't know how to answer the question then. But now he'll say things like, mommy, I feel like you're working too much. I just love it when you and me can play Lego. So he's, he's, he'll come to me and say like, I want your time. 
Yes. Uh, he still asks for presents. Like, let's be honest. Yeah. He still wants all the Legos in the world and all the Minecraft and whatever. But what he values or what he's come to value is asking for my time. And I can also forget as an, I'm an entrepreneur, you know, I'm, you know, I'm starting this podcast. I have all these little projects that are on the go. So I can often also forget to say, okay, it's time for mommy and Sonny. You know, we call it like date night or date time or whatever, where it's just me and him. And then I spend time with my other child as well. But that was a really useful nugget that I took because we are like kind of back to this idea of, you know, being a coach, we are their substitute brain. (laughs) We are, you know, if they're mirroring back to us, you know, you're not spending enough, like you're not being present with your time. And he's able to say to me, I want you to be more, you know, that, that instantly, almost instantly calms him down. So if he's like, you know, fighting or hitting his brother or whatever, and I say, how can I help you right now? How can I be you know, how can I be the best parent to you right now? And he'll say, I want you to come and cuddle me or I want you to come play Legos with me. Like it almost instantly diffuses his, yeah. his energetic so charge. Yeah. So beautiful. Just in that, let's give some practical tools of what you really are doing. First, you didn't get caught up in the surface behavior. You went to his need. This kid has a need and I need to fulfill the need. So I'm going to connect to his emotions. I'm not going to shame him, not going to punish him and not fr- be frustrated with him. Right. I'm going to understand he is needy he's struggling emotionally and i need to step in to be his brain Mm -hmm. right yeah and the second thing is you didn't make it about you like oh you're upsetting me you are you know you're disappointing me you're Mm -hmm. coming to him and going how can i help you i see you're struggling especially with kids under 13 14 this is the approach now after 13 14 you could say things like you know when you act like that that really is disappointing or then you can change it to their actions more and make it more personal if you need to. Mm-hmm. But it's always a good idea to keep yourself out of it. But for younger kids than 13, where they're just simply floundering and they're struggling and they don't have the tools, we must step in to help them with the compensatory tools that they're lacking. Yeah. And I, I have to tell you, you know, he's eight uh, right now and it completely brings down that charge, that energetic, like that anger or that frustration that he has, it literally melts away. It's the yeah. most, and it's so counterintuitive. You would never think that that would work, but it completely yeah. does. Yeah. 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 Uh, so the fourth myth, good parents. I love this one. Good parents are naturals. You are natural at being a good parent. And I, I'm guilty of this too. I romanticized being a mother. It was going to be this beautiful flowery thing. And yeah. Yes. And, and that we should just know how to do it. And we just know, you know, my goodness. And then when you have the kid, you're like, oh my God, I don't know anything. I don't know how to learn everything. Mm-hmm. And there's too much to learn where to go. There's so much to learn. Yeah. And really, actually, parenting should just be learning. We, we don't know these children who come to us. Mm-hmm. But, you know, because it's been done so unconsciously in the past that people have just said, you just do it. You just do it. You just know what to do. And yeah, we know how to change the nappy and the mechanics, but we won't know how, that we even need to know. Right. So it's such a dangerous thing to think that it's natural because then you think you should know. Right. Then when the kid doesn't listen to you, it's not because you don't actually know. It's because the kid is bad. You see how it, there's, a, there's an equation that follows from the delusion. So you have to break that equation and go, oh, I don't know. It's not the kid. It's me who doesn't know. But there's so much pressure we women especially place on ourselves to know it all. And I'm a big advocate to say, no, it's not meant to be natural. It's meant to be a steep learning curve. You're meant to fail and screw up. So just accept it. And now start, you know, learning a different way to parent, which doesn't presume you're supposed to know it all. It's so dangerous to think that. And it's like a, I always liken it to like a diet, you know, like if you're trying to lose weight, you have to think about it every day, right? You have to think about, you have to be mindful of the food that you're preparing, how the food makes you feel, and then kind of tweak it for the next time you have to eat or the next interaction. I feel like parenting is almost like that as well. Like you have to think, you have to think about it every day, be mindful about the words that you use, how it's making you feel. So if you're getting triggered by something, you have to become awake to that. And then also how you can change it for the next time that it comes up. Because if you, the one thing I've learned, at least, you know, with my children is if I don't, it's like win or learn, you either win it or you have, you have another learning opportunity because it will come up over and over and over again until, you know, until you kind of get it right. Yeah. It'll keep coming over and over and over again, whether you get it right or wrong. What you're saying is that don't get, when you win it, it means you're not blowing up because of it. Right. It'll keep coming. Right. You'll be saying, can you please say please and thank you when they're 14, you know, but I think, but yeah, you're right. When you begin to see it as a moment by moment, by moment, by moment, it's a daily cultivation 
then you have a very different energy around it. It's not a destination. It's so much a process. And I love this for women, especially because I think females, like women are so hard on themselves for everything, for everything. But when it comes to mothering or becoming a parent, it's like they turn into this unrecognizable animal and they have, you know, it's like they constantly are beating themselves up, constantly feel like they don't know. And I think that there's some comfort in knowing that we all don't know what we're doing and our all, all of our journeys, like the journey is, you know, if I can sum up your book in like a sentence, it'll be the journey is not outward, it's inward. Like you have to go inward in order to make this thing work called parenting work. It just allows for permission for failure, which but, I think- but, but it's interesting because we're so guilty and we're so hard on ourselves. Now I'm saying, look inside, it's all you. Then the mother feels even more guilty. You know, right. so it's a double-edged sword, but you, you understand that when I say look inward, it actually takes away the guilt because you begin to understand that this projection of our unconsciousness is normal. We're yes. all going to do it. We have been doing it. The guilt comes almost because you're not embracing and celebrating that this is a journey of exploration. The guilt comes because you're thinking this is not a journey, so there's no growth. And right. it's not exploration. It should be perfect. Right. right? So when, I, when I and you frame it as a journey of exploration, then it actually takes away the guilt, even though in a weird way, it's putting more focus on you, you know? Right. But when it, when it comes from the lens of healing and saying, listen, I was raised very likely by an, in an unconscious culture with unconscious parents who have implanted without my permission, you know, their beliefs, their views, their core values, you know, and I am now unconsciously expressing those things. It's a discovery. It's, you know, and I often will say, you know, the most important relationship you'll ever have is the one that you have with yourself. And this is another way for you to deepen and understand yourself better so that you can show up in the world. And in this case, to your, to your children, the way that you want. Absolutely. Beautifully, beautifully put. Yes. All right. Myth number five. This one is uh, this one makes me laugh because I was so I'm so guilty of this. A good parent is a loving one, right? Right. So well, because you know, love love is this term we we pass around, we lobby around. But I really, you know, have um, a more challenging expression of love. You know, I don't believe love is just something you feel and should feel passively. Love is the most active thing you can feel, and it really involves. No judgment, no approval, no conditions, no transactions. It's really love for the other person's essence, no matter how they make you feel. And most of us, at least in intimate relationships, cannot love another like that. You know, love is full of transactions, give and take. And I understand that on, on one level, but the challenge really, especially with our children, because it's never an equal relationship, it, it, you know, they don't have to give us the same way we give them. Can we, at least with them, reach these higher states of transcendent love where we're not with ego. We're not looking to get something back. You know, my, my Oculus heel is I like my daughter to say thank you and recognize every good thing I do. So everything I do, I, I, if she doesn't say thank you, I'd be like, uh-huh, do you see what I just did? Do you see I got up early and took you there? Do you see I'm like driving your friends around? And she's yeah. like, okay. Like I'm begging, like I had to really ask myself, my goodness, are you doing this only for thanks? And obviously, none of us want to be not thanked. But when we, so when I notice that ego in me, that hunger, that I need validation, like, hello, I'm such a good parent. I'm such, do you see, do you see, do you see, do you see? Mm-hmm. I realize I got to stop putting this on her and really see myself. And the standard is for myself. Do I see myself as a good parent? And that's it. Otherwise, don't do it. You know, if you're going to do it for the other to keep saying thank you or to love you back, that's not pure love. So I had to really start breaking myself out of this habit. It's really hard for me to do because I really want her to see how good a parent I am. <laughs> it's just like I'm like addicted. I'm like, please see me, see me, see me. Right. But it's the same as to, to a lover. Do you see I'm beautiful? To a mother, do you see I'm smart? It's the same thing. So we right. have to really look at our love and see our love as being tainted with conditionality, with possession, with control, with conditions right? All these mothers who are like not getting happy Mother's Day calls, you know, I, I, I gently laugh at them because I'm like, are you a mother for that happy Mother's Day? Yeah. Call? <laughs> we are. They're like, yes, I didn't get a letter. Did you get a letter? Right. What? 
your your daughter wrote you a I love you letter and didn't write one to me. This this is our hunger, you see, and yeah. this is our love is not pure and not unconditional. It's got conditions, and when I say this, parents don't like it, but it's the truth. And sometimes, you know, you do things in the name of love. Right. So, you know, you may say like, for example, this was something that was told to me when I was growing up uh, and this has come from a lot of reflection, but I'll share it with you. You know, I would bring home a grade that I was really proud of. Let's say it was like an 85 or 90, whatever, whatever was on the test, whatever the number was. And the comment to me was, well, what happened to the other 10%? What happened to the 15? And of course they were doing it. Like my parents were doing this from a place of what they thought was encouraging me to reach higher and do better in school. But I took it as, well, I guess it's that, like, I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm stupid. I only got 85. And then that voice, it's almost like it infected my, the way that I think about myself. So when now when I get, you know, if I take a course or I'm trying to, even just in preparing for an interview, like this, I will say, okay, like it has to be painful. Like it has to hurt for me to feel like I'm prepared because I have those, you know, and this is something I'm actively working on and, you know, sharing this with, with pure vulnerability. But this is, I, I think, a good example to your point that it's not like the love is, um, there's a difference between the intention and how it's received. Yeah. And even the intention can be love, but because it's unconscious, it's not love. They just think it's love, but that's because they're not really looking inside themselves to say, where is this motivation, this sentence, this statement, this fear coming from? Right. It's so easy to say, you know, I'm so scared about your future because I love you. No, I'm scared of your future because I have unresolved fear from my own past. Right. You know, no, I'm highly critical of you, not because I love you, but because I grew up with criticism and I'm, I'm a highly judgmental person. Mm-hmm. You know, no, it's, it's these, these are people whose intention is claimed as love because it's not fully delved into and looked at in the mirror. Listen, this takes a lot of self-appraisal, a lot of honesty, and no one wants to be honest. No one, you know, and and this is where we parents hide behind love, especially, or like I hide behind, oh, my sacrifice for you. It takes courage for me to say, no, I'm just full of shit. I just want thanks. I just want the 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 prize you know say i'm the best mom please say i'm the best mom why because i'm i want to tell the whole world that my daughter thinks i'm the best mom please write me a mother's day card so i can post it on facebook it's it's for me so if we're not willing to look at that and see how things are for ourselves then we call it love but it's not love it's just our own unexplored fears and emotions just spilling out you know yeah. And that kind of leads into the next myth, which is parenting is about raising a happy child. So they may say that it's for love or they may say that, you know, but it's like, yeah. I just want my child to be happy. You know, that's just what I want. Right. You don't want anything. I want to say the fact that you say, I want my child to be happy. Just that sentence is formulaically so erroneous. So I be quiet. Want. <laughs> Be quiet. <laughs> my child to be. Oh, you want your child to be something? Be quiet, right? Like, right. it's the ego, you mm. know? And sure, we all want our child to be, but that's not life. You and I have had already a life that, quote unquote, our parents would be like, oh my God, that's not happiness. Right. But look how beautifully we've traveled through it, how mm. we've grown from it, and we've come out of it. You know, you and I have had tremendous heartache and pain and struggle. Yeah. Our parents would not want that for us, but they had no choice. You know why? Because life is life. So this bullshit that, oh, I want my child to be happy means you don't want your child to have a life. Because if you want your child to have a life, guess what? A lot of that life is not going to be happy. And that's the beautiful part of life. If life was all happy, there would be no nuance. There would be no adventure. There would be no complexity and there would be no growth. You know, so... Sure, we want our children to, to be resilient. I would say I want my child to know who it is they are. I want my child to be resilient. If at all I'm daring to have any wants, I want to have realistic ones that they're ready to understand that life is not a utopia, to, to understand life will have pain mm-hmm. and that they have the resources to deal with the pain. If I'm going to have a want, let's have some realistic wants. What is happiness? Which life is just happy? Which right. life? I don't know one. And right. that life would bore me because that person would just be sitting in a little shoebox, never going out of the, the ordinary. 
And to your point, you said this earlier where you want people to be able to process emotions and just sit with them and then be able to move through them. I think that if you're always saying you need to be happy, you're not teaching them how to deal with things like rejection because that happens in life. You, you know, you, and everybody at some point is going to be hit with something. It's, you know, death or divorce or, you know, whatever, whatever the the life event is. But if you don't, like you're saying, if you don't teach them about resilience, you can teach them about things like rejection, but without ascribing anything to their self-worth, right? So they can be rejected. Like I was rejected from a publishing company. I was proposing a book and they were like, you know what? You don't have enough following on social media. Like I have, you know, I have my email list and whatever. Like we, we need your social media to be bigger. But I haven't ascribed anything to, to my capabilities around that because I've just had the fortitude to do some of the inner work that you're talking about. Whereas right. if just focusing on happiness, you might say, oh, well, I'm such a failure. Like they said, they don't want me because of this. Like that must mean something about me is not right. But that's why when you, when you say to the kid, I want you to be happy, I want you to be happy, the kid begins to think happiness is a goal. So right. anything out of happiness like boredom, neutrality, mm-hmm. sadness is seen as a defect. You see right. how we set our children up. When we tell them that success should look like this, mm-hmm. then anything that doesn't look like it makes them feel defective. Similarly with happiness, what we need to teach our children is life is life. They will, whether they're living in a mansion or in a regular house, it's the same life. It's how you approach it. That is the X factor. And the one in the mansion is not happier. The one in the, in the little two bedroom or one bedroom apartment isn't sadder. It's their attitude to life and their attitude toward themselves. Yeah. I love that. So well said. And then the last myth that you discuss, and then after this, I want to get to some of the how-to and the tactics, but myth number seven, parents need to be in control. Well, we've been told that, you know, if you're a parent, you're in charge of your kid and you're responsible and, you know, they shouldn't throw a tantrum and you should see every, you know, I'm sure this happened to you as a new mother, you go on the plane, you're like looking at everybody's eyes, expecting you be in control of your kid. Don't fuck up our flight, right? Yeah, yeah. Pressure and Really, we should tell those people, excuse me, you know, this is a child. You were a child once. I can only try to control my kid, but I can't control my kid. Right. And, and that for the long term, and that's really the truth with our children. We can try and we want them to not be axe murderers. But at the end of the day, we can't even control that. Mm-hmm. If they grow up and have some psychedelic experience and some wiring from some ancestor gets turned on, that's not you, right? Like, you try your best, but you're not in control of your children's destiny. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and of course, through the connection and through the intense bonding, there can be some greater immunity uh, from psych- psychosis, but you can't guarantee that, you know? Right. right. In your book on page 110, I'm just, this was like, this hit me like a punch in the face. It was so beautiful. Um, Well, maybe a punch in the face isn't beautiful, but it hit me like it, like I had a visceral response to it. One of the statements I made on Oprah's life class resonated with many in the audience. We cannot control our children, I explained. We can only create the conditions for them to rise. What this means is that we need to stop expanding our energy on trying to control who they are and how they turn out in the future. As long as we keep our focus on this, we will engage in a losing battle. The real challenge is to keep our eyes on the parameters that are truly under our control, which is ourselves and the way that our home functions. That's all we have control over. So when yeah. you, this is the liberation, right? When you stop focusing on them, because when you focus on them, that gives you anxiety. Because somewhere we know we're focusing on somebody that we're not supposed to have jurisdiction over. Mm-hmm. So that's why parents are so anxious. When you, when you come back into your lane and just focus on where you do have control, isn't that liberating? Like, I don't have control over her. I don't have control over my husband. I don't have control over my dog. I have control over myself. That's liberating. That's empowering. That takes out your anxiety. Now you can do something about it and you can rise to the highest levels possible. So let's move into some of the, the tactics. I think this has been a really like voluminous, you know, a beautiful discussion in terms of the frameworks that you're presenting. And I think in many ways, it's very radical. People are like, what? I don't have control over my kids. But let's assume for a moment that, you know, the listener uh, is saying, okay, I want to ha- I want to start on this journey to become more conscious. So I want to be able to identify the narratives that I have in my head, the belief structures that I've, that I've uh, taken from my ancestors. What are some of the tools that we can start with 
you know, no, no matter where you are on the path of consciousness to become more awake and to become more attuned with ourselves? Are there things that you, you know, is it journaling? Is it, you know, what, what are some of the things that you recommend in terms of becoming more awake and more conscious? Well, to take self-help courses, you know, so I have many. So for example, you know, take mine, take other people's self-help courses, self-development courses, journal, write about your triggers, you know, what triggered you during the day, ask yourself why I was triggered, turn the mirror inward, speak with a coach regularly so that you can under get feedback as to where you're following in, into the same patterns. And, um, and meditate, you know, in meditation, you learn to create that pause between the, the stimulus and the reaction, which is so important in parenthood. Mm-hmm. And you create that space and you create an inner connectivity. So these are the tools. In practicality, you learn to look at your child's behavior as a message. What is the message this child is trying to convey? You stop focusing on the behavior and you stop trying to react to the behavior. You go underneath to go, what is the need? Is it a need for connection? Is it a need for boundaries? Is it a need for some skill? You know, where is the need coming from? And when you look under the surface, then the external doesn't distract you. And then you can really focus on the needs. So teenagers who typically are saying, fuck you, shut up, slamming doors, they could be on drugs. <laughs> that's always a possibility. But also, that's really a need for greater connection. You know, my child is feeling isolated from me, is rejecting me because they're feeling rejected. I need to show up with compassion and availability. Mm-hmm. If a younger child is, is doing those things, it may be because they're unable to emotionally regulate and they need to learn skills, they need to learn language. So again, knowing who your kid is at different stages of development and, and seeing them as exhibiting a need versus exhibiting badness or goodness will allow us to make some progress, some real, real useful progress. And I love, I love the meditation and the journaling. I have to say, the more I meditate, if I'm feeling triggered, I, I almost have the, uh, it's like a muscle, you know, it's almost like I just have enough space. Like my mind can almost like flex Mm -hmm. and I just have enough space between the time that I want to reach out and be like, how dare you say that to me or whatever. And okay. Uh, settle down. Let's just think about what, what is the child? What do I need to think about in terms of how I can be there and create a container for this person rather than that egoic, like quick, cause the ego comes first. I always find my ego comes right. Like it's right there all the time, but the meditation yeah. is allowed for a little bit of a gap in between the time that my ego flares off and my, and my actual reaction. So yeah, meditation are- has been the single most profound tool in my life. And, uh, it's, it's, it's so much so that I'm more connected inward than outward. So by the time I really even can react, it takes some time, which is the most profoundly beautiful thing because I'm connected inward, I'm connected to my breath, to nature, and the noise of people hardly bothers me. And sometimes I have to come out of my own inner connection and awareness to go, what did you just say? Mm-hmm. And then, but by then you've already diffused the reactivity. You know, We need to have space to stand on that platform and not jump on every compartment that goes by in the train. You know, we get to choose where we go and children allow us opportunity after opportunity to just ignore, diffuse, stay in equanimity, not react to every single thing. So these are a couple of questions that are coming in from our community. If you are a divorced parent and the child custody is shared, so you are working on being conscious and the other parent is sort of stuck in their old ways. Now what we're finding is that that child is now being exposed to both the parent who's trying to you know, control their home and control themselves and control the environment. And then you also have the parent who's trying to control the child. What are some of the ways that you, how do you deal with that situation? Is it just you? Yeah, it's not only happening in divorced couples, it's happening in married couples where you have two different right. philosophies in the house. Right. Well, then you, you understand that you're on the path and your partner's not on the path. That's okay. But you, you have to allow for the mess now. The kid is confused. The kid is going to use it. I'll go to dad's house. I don't like your house or vice versa. Mm-hmm. So you just have to clean up the mess. What to do? And parents often say, oh, should I just not go on this journey because it's better that we both are on the same page? And I say, absolutely not. You know, in my book, The Awakened Family is really written for one parent. It's not talking about this utopic four people and grandparents and siblings. And It's one parent, one child. Mm-hmm. And the reason I do that is so that we all take responsibility and step up to the plate and not wait for our partners. Yeah, we don't need permission to become conscious parents and we certainly don't, should not retard and get distracted from our own progress because our partner is not going on the path. Right. 
Uh, Anna is asking, how do you show equality in your parenting when you have a special needs kid that needs more attention than the rest of your children and you only have so much time and energy? Well, it's so hard when you have a special needs kid and you just have to, if you can, rally up the troops, meaning get your cousins involved, get your aunts involved, rotate the schedule, get self-care in your agenda. And if you can't do that, then you have to just have compassion with yourself. You know, if you're 20 pounds heavy, you're 20 pounds heavy. We can't be everything to all people and all things and all images of ourselves as women. Mm -hmm. Something has to give. Either the child gets outsourced a bit, like other people come in and help, yep. or your, your fitness goes away, or you, something has to give, or your husband gets neglected and he can be outsourced. You're just, I'm just saying, like we put so much pressure on ourselves to be the perfect wife, to be the perfect mother, to be right. the perfect daughter. We can't be it all. Mm -hmm. So especially when you have a special needs kid and other kids, the, the greatest compassion needs to be shown toward you. And therefore it's okay if your dishes are in the sink and it's okay if you haven't washed your hair for two weeks. You have to understand that you are taking care of a, of a person with great needs. And that takes a lot out of a woman. Mm -hmm. You know, mothering just takes the life out of us, doesn't it? Yeah. And I think we, we are ashamed to talk about just how draining it is because we have this mantle of perfection over our heads. And I love what you're saying about being gentle with yourself and giving yourself permission to have the dishes all over the place and your hair unwashed. I think we don't, I think as women, we don't do that enough. So I think that's really great. Really, really good advice. Uh, and last question, Misty is asking, so grace is one of my core values, my grace in character and speech. I find it very easy to give grace to my children when they mess up, but I, not, I do not always give grace to myself. What are some tips that you have to extend the same love we do to our children to ourselves? And this is kind of along the same vein, right? Yeah. And we really can't fully love our children. I mean, right now she's giving them grace, but eventually she hit a roadblock. Because unless she sees herself as also a fallible human being here to grow, and if she, I often call guilt narcissism, because we have this narcissistic idea, idea that we should be perfect. Mm -hmm. So if we understand we're not perfect, then there's really no need to even have grace. It's just acceptance. And so the reason she can't have grace for herself is she's not accepting herself as a fallible human being. She really is thinking she should be infallible, godlike. And that's just insane. So it's kind of a narcissistic arrogance that we have that we should be, you know, fully perfect. If you have humility and grace already, then you don't have to have grace. It's already part of your nature. It's like, do I need to have humility? No, humility should be part of my nature that I am a fallible, bumbling, forgetful, disorganized person. Sometimes I can be cruel. You know, many parents don't want to see that they can be full of ego, that they can be cruel. You know, many of us have a hard time seeing that about ourselves, but the real grace comes in accepting, sometimes I can be cruel. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I can be unthinking. Sometimes I can be, you know, uh, stingy. These shadow aspects of ourselves, we don't want to look at. And until we really look at that, only then will we really accept our children's shadow. Yeah. So for those of you that are listening to the podcast and not watching the video, uh, Dr. Shafali has on one of the best t-shirts I've ever seen. It says awake-ish. And it was, we were talking in the pre-chat. I was saying, when do we, when are we going to be fully, you know, conscious? When do we get to wear the t-shirt that says awake or woke AF or, you know, is it, is it, is that just a process that we are constantly unraveling or is it, is it a process or is it, is it a destination? I guess is the I think final. always, always unraveling, but they can get these t-shirts. I'm selling them online. This t-shirt I made up. And I they can also buy it if they come see me at my event, Evolve. I have an annual event. So maybe some of your readers, if they want to learn more about my work and yes. really go deep into a, a depthful experience, they can come to my weekend, Evolve. It's in October 18th to the 20th in Long Beach, California. Mm -hmm. I have it every year around uh, fall time. And uh, it's three or four. And the fourth day is a meditation day where they can come and learn what I'm talking about and really begin to apply these philosophies in their lives. They, it's intimate. It's with me. I'm, most, I'm mostly the one on stage. It's not a huge group. It's, it's quite a small but solid gathering of people who really want to enlighten, liberate, and evolve. 
Uh, and we'll make sure that we link uh, all those details in the show notes of this podcast. I just want to thank you so much, uh, Shafali. Your like the breadth of work and the this is truly a revolution. I think in the way that we look at how we raise the next generation of children, so that and it's not about it's not even about them. It's all about making sure that we heal ourselves so that we can be you know, woke AF or awake-ish, as you say, um, to uh, to be our highest selves so that we can help our children, you know, cultivate self-esteem and grit and perseverance and resilience, which is what it's all about. So I just wanted to thank, oh, thank you. Stephanie. Thank you for everything. And to yeah. your, your listeners, thank you for having me. And we will always elevate and support each other. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can find all this information at our website, bettershow.co. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-S-H-O-W dot C-O. Maybe the simplest way to keep in touch with me is to sign up for my email. When you go to bettershow.co, there'll be a little pop-up and I send a weekly email on all things mindset, nutrition, fitness, uh, longevity, aging, things that are capturing my attention that week in a newsletter that we call Brain Candy. You can find me on social, on Twitter, it's Dr. underscore Stephanie. On Instagram, I am Dr. Stephanie Estima. That's S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E-E-S-T-I-M-A. And finally, a legal and medical disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only, and the advice, discussions, and recommendations that we discuss on this podcast do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare professional's advice or care. There is no doctor-patient relationship that has been established in the consumption of this podcast, and the use and implementation of the information contained here are at the sole discretion of the listener. The content in this podcast is not intended to be used as a substitute for any professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment.